Hey folks, nothing bad in this episode, but you know, it's about a content control regime and that means that we get into a few things like the acknowledgement of the existence of sex. There is some verbatim quoted archaic racial language. Don't worry, nothing too bad. Uh, there is a swear at the end. There is also the acknowledgement of a certain bit of anatomy. And again, nothing extreme or bad, but maybe don't listen with your kids or do. I don't know. I don't know what your parenting style is. I don't know your life. Anyway, on with the show. Here we go. Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Last time, EC Comics publisher Bill Gaines went in front of a Senate subcommittee and defended his right to put a severed head on the cover of a comic book. He also talked about how great horror stories were, how they were thrilling and had nice twisty endings, and he said that Dr. Friedrich Wortham, his main political opponent, who also testified before that Senate subcommittee, was like a cold, unfeeling widow who did not understand love. Now, for somebody who enjoys horror stories, and I do, I like horror movies and horror video games, horror TV shows, and horror comics, this seems great. This is kind of a fist-in-the-air, punk-rock, stick-it-to-the-man type moment. But this didn't play well in 1954. Anti-comic book sentiment was already rampant. I talked about that last time. And by going in front of a Senate subcommittee and talking about how great severed heads were, Bill Gaines just appeared to be every bit the purveyor of juvenile delinquency that everyone thought he was. So, after Senator Estes Kefauver's subcommittee hearings, the heat on comics just got worse. It looked like government control of comic books was a very real possibility. State legislatures were talking about it. A Senate subcommittee was talking about it. And this scared a lot of people. Obviously, it scared comic book publishers, but, you know, also anyone concerned with the freedom of the press. Uh, last episode, I quoted The Nation saying that they deplored comic books, but they also didn't like the idea of a state or federal government using prior restraint about what a publisher could and couldn't put out there. So, to avoid getting censored by governments, either on a state, local, or federal level, comic book publishers decided to censor themselves. And, weirdly, the idea for this self-censorship came from Bill Gaines. He wrote a letter to his fellow publishers proposing that they band together and have some kind of content regime about what could and couldn't be in comic books. And the letter he wrote to his publishers has some delightfully purple prose in it. For example, quote, If fools rush in where angels fear to tread, then I suppose EC is being pretty foolish. We may get our fingers burned and our toes stepped on. Be that as it may, it seems to me that someone has to take the initiative. Unquote. Now, this wasn't an entirely new idea. There had been publishing organizations in comics before that had tried to exercise some kind of quality and content control. However, those prior organizations and those prior quality and content control regimes 
were not comprehensive or effective. They didn't have every single publisher on board, and they were also not well publicized. This would be different. This would be very comprehensive, getting nearly all publishers on board, very well publicized, and there would be a big stamp on the front of every comic book that went out there assuring parents that their kids were reading good, wholesome, life-affirming, mind-enriching, sequential art. But when the comic book publishers got together, and keep in mind, they're all based in New York, so for the heads of, you know, Archie and DC and, uh, and Marvel and all that to get together, it's not that difficult. They realized that it wasn't romance or westerns or superheroes or Archie comics that were a problem. The thing that the public was really concerned about were horror comics or crime comics. Whenever comics got in the news and people were wringing their hands and clutching their pearls about them, it wasn't Superman that they were concerned about. Well, Friedrich Wortham was concerned about Superman, but, you know, he was weird. It was the zombies and the werewolves and the severed heads and guns and knives and crime and all that. So one of the things that publishers started talking about was removing the creepy horror elements from comic books. The Comics Magazine Association of America included nearly every comic book publisher in existence. However, Bill Gaines was just one guy, and the Comics Magazine Association of America would use the Comics Code Authority to throw horror comics under the bus. It was a way for other publishers to say, hey, we publish westerns. We're not like those evil zombie comics. Hey, we publish romances. We're not like those terrible comics with lust and depravity. Hey, we're just publishing Superman. He's all about truth, justice, and the American way. We're not the ones with severed heads on the covers of our books. So here's some of the initial 1954 Comics Code Authority rules. They were pretty stringent. This is probably the single most stringent content regime that any American media has ever had. Listen to this. There are rules like, Crimes shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal, to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice, or to inspire others with a desire to imitate criminals. I love that provision because that means you can't have Macbeth. God forbid that you have somebody who does terrible things and you have even an iota of sympathy for them going on. If crime is depicted, it shall be as a sordid and unpleasant activity. No glamorous casinos, no high-rolling mob bosses, none of that. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. So you can't have dirty cops, and you can't have corrupt officials. That's a shame. In every instance, good shall triumph over evil, and a criminal punished for his misdeeds. That would exclude many, many episodes of Law and Order. Law and Order... Where criminals get away, they prosecute the wrong person, or something else goes awry. Uh, no comic magazine shall use the words horror or terror in its title. That is a direct jab at EC Comics. That is the other publishers using this content regime that Bill Gaines thought of as a way to muscle him out. And it goes on. All scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, masochism shall not be permitted. 
all lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated. Also, this will probably unsurprise you, that profanity, obscenity, smut, vulgarity, or words or symbols which have acquired undesirable meanings are forbidden. Nudity in any form is prohibited, as is indecent or undue exposure. Suggestive and salacious illustration or seductive posture is unacceptable. Females, and yes, they wrote females, not women, which is weird, shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. Illicit sex relations are neither to be hinted at nor portrayed. Rape scenes as well as sexual abnormalities are unacceptable. That, by the way, is what kept a lot of LGBTQ characters out of comics for decades. Sex perversion or any inference to the same is strictly forbidden. Again, that was used to keep queer characters out of comic books for decades. But here's my favorite restriction that the Comics Code Authority placed on creators. It said, quote, Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. So no violence, no nudity, no sex, no gay people, and no werewolves. As you can imagine, Bill Gaines was utterly incensed. But this was his idea, and this was a whole thing that they were doing to get comic books back on the up and up with the public, government officials, religious officials, the various powers that be. But who would enforce this authority? Who would the newly formed Comics Magazine Association of America have as their main content overseer? Well, the first guy suggested Friedrich Wortham. After all, what better way to get legitimacy in the eyes of the public than take comic book's biggest detractor and turn him into the Lord High Inquisitor of what comic books could and could not have? Now, we don't know if Wortham was offered the job or not, but he did not become the first enforcer of the Comics Code Authority. Instead, that job went to a judge named Charles Murphy. And a lot of people thought, hey, we'll make these rules. We'll make these rules, we'll have a stamp that goes on comic books, we'll have all these assurances, and everything will be fine. But Charles Murphy surprised a lot of people. He actually took his job really seriously, and a lot of comic books had to make changes to their content. At the time, a lot of comic books did reprints, and when various stories were reprinted, Charles Murphy made sure that offending material got covered up. Let's say there was a knife that was held a bit too menacingly, blacked out. Let's say there was a little bit too much violence. Maybe one of the parties would be blacked out, so it just looks like somebody is swinging wildly at nothing. Doesn't make any sense, but hey, the code says you can't have that. Or let's say there is a prominent comic book series that features female characters who wear tight shirts and short skirts. Charles Murphy made Betty and Veronica dress more modestly. He demanded that their skirts be longer and their shirts be looser because God forbid that any kid get weird feelings about either or both of Archie's potential girlfriends. This shocked a lot of people. Charles Murphy going in and actually enforcing rules surprised a lot of people in the comic book industry who thought that they were just going to make some gestures in the general direction of a content regime, have this stamp all over everything, and call it good. Carmine Infantino, who was an editor and artist at DC, said, quote, 
he took the whole industry by surprise. No one expected him to really change things, unquote. However, Charles Murphy wasn't just a guy who was covering up knives and making Betty and Veronica look like they went to a school with an unreasonable dress code. His biggest act of censorship had nothing to do with anything actually in the code. It was for an EC comic, a science fiction story, a story about an astronaut from Earth who goes to a planet with two warring factions of robots. Some of the robots are orange, and some of them are blue. That is the only difference between them, and yet, they are eternal enemies. You can probably see the race metaphor going on. It's not subtle. Nothing EC Comics ever did was subtle. Despite his best efforts, the astronaut is unable to end the eternal conflict between the blue and orange robots. He retreats to his ship and meditates on their conflict. In the last panel, he takes off his helmet, which he has worn for the entire story. The reader sees that the astronaut is black. He looks off into the stars and is perplexed, and he finds that this hatred between these two factions of robots to be alien. In a way, it's kind of a hopeful story, because it portrays a black astronaut looking at this color-based conflict going on on this planet and seeing it as something completely outside his experience. This story implies a far future where Earth has kind of gotten over a lot of stuff, which is great. And yet, Charles Murphy told EC Comics that they could not have a black astronaut at the end of the story. This is a quote from author David Hadju's book, The Ten Cent Plague, about anti-comics hysteria. And it's an account of a conversation between Murphy and an editor at EC. It does use some kind of archaic race language, which I'm just going to quote verbatim. Anyway, here it is. Quote, Murphy read the pages impassively. He got to the last panel, Feldstein said. Feldstein's the EC guy. And he looked up at me and he said, No, you can't have a Negro. I said, Why not? He said, You can't have a Negro. I said, Where does the code say that I can't depict a Negro? He said, I say you can't have a Negro. I said, that's the point of the whole story. No. So I said, bye. Feldstein returned to the EC office and protested to Gaines. I said, Bill, this is impossible. It just can't work. They are after our ass, and they're going to find any excuse to give us a hard time. And Bill called up Murphy and said, what the hell is going on? And Murphy said, you can't have a Negro. And Bill said, okay. I'm going to have a press conference. I'm going to tell the public that the comic book authority is a racist authority that will not permit black people to have equal depiction or something like that. Later on in the conversation, Gaines and Murphy got into a riotous argument, the details of which were not recorded, but we know how the argument ended. It ended with Bill Gaines loudly saying to Murphy, fuck you, and slamming down the phone. After that, EC Comics ceased to be part of the Comic Magazine Association of America. But there was a problem. A lot of people in the comic book production and distribution chain wouldn't print without the seal. That Comics Code Authority seal really meant something in those early days. So printers wouldn't print a book without it. Distributors wouldn't distribute a book without it. Newsstands wouldn't carry comics without it. EC Comics was done. So they changed. Bill Gaines folded a lot of those old horror comics like Tales from the Crypt and the Vault of Horror and all that, 
and took one of their big projects that had nothing to do with zombies or werewolves and changed its format. Mad, the comic book, turned into Mad Magazine. The larger format meant that it didn't need to have that Comics Code Authority seal on it. Mad still had cartoons and comics in it, but it also had prose humor and illustrations and that kind of thing, and Mad Magazine continues to this day. EC Comics would also eventually have a certain amount of vindication. Tales from the Crypt would go on to become a pretty fun HBO show. There were a few not-very-good movies, and nowadays people like me can pick up those old collections and, you know, and appreciate a lot of that awesome Twilight zone type stuff they were doing. But for the purposes of our story, EC Comics is done. But what do the other publishers do? They're still in the business of making comics. They can't have any Draculas or werewolves doing stuff, and also, a lot of crime stories are basically out. It used to be a mainstay for superheroes to beat up hoodlums and thugs and all that, but now any depiction of what could be considered actual real crime is pretty iffy. So what do you do? How do you make conflict? How do you make bad guys? Now, this is just me talking. This is my own speculation about the period of comic books that comic book geeks often call the Silver Age. You have the Golden Age of comics, which is, you know, the 1930s and the first days of Superman and Batman and all that. Then you have the Silver Age in the late 50s and then 60s, and then, I guess, the Bronze Age or the Modern Age or the Dark Age. or it, it, The nomenclature breaks down. Anyway, the Silver Age of comics in the late 50s and in the 1960s is pretty weird. And it's my belief that a lot of the weirdness in 1960s comics comes from the Comics Code Authority. You can't have realistic criminals? Who does Batman fight? Well, he can fight people like Polka Dot Man, a villain introduced in 1962, a guy covered in all kinds of different polka dots. And his powers are that he can remove polka dots from his costume, and then different polka dots will do different things. Or Marvel Comics comes along in the 60s, and you have villains like Doctor Doom. Now, Doctor Doom does not resemble anything in the real world, which is what makes him great. But the very first Doctor Doom story, the Fantastic Four, don't fight him for anything remotely realistic. No, instead, he sends them back in time because he's the master of science and sorcery and he could do that, and the Fantastic Four have to fight for Blackbeard's treasure. You have Batman meet an alternate version of himself from another dimension. You also have Batman wearing different colored bat costumes every night because reasons. You have all kinds of crazy stuff, and it's great, and I love the Silver Age, and I love how incredibly unrealistic and impractical and out there and time travely and alternate dimensiony and goofy comic books can be. But a lot of that goofiness in the late 50s and in the 60s came because it was morally neutral. Someone like the Riddler bears little to no resemblance to actual real criminals, the insane, insecure super genius who loves trivia and crosswords and wants to prove that he is the best puzzle guy doesn't carry the same moral concern as Batman fighting organized crime, for instance. So I am of the belief that a lot of that craziness was a workaround. 
a lot of the mid-century goofy cartoony stuff became prominent because that is what the Comics Code Authority implicitly allowed for. One of my favorite goofy cartoony things, though, was a Marvel Comics creation in 1969, a guy called Sauron. And yes, he does have the same name as the villain from The Lord of the Rings, but Sauron in Marvel Comics bears pretty much no resemblance to Sauron in Tolkien's novels. Sauron in Marvel, he is a pterosaur, he wears jorts, and he feeds off energy from other people, and he was something that Marvel Comics creators did because they weren't allowed to have vampires. This is a quote from Marvel creator Neil Adams. He says, quote, There were things you couldn't do because of the Comics Code Authority in those days. For instance, the Comics Code Authority wouldn't let you put a vampire in a comic book story. So I wondered if it was possible to come up with a character that was just like a vampire, but would still pass the Comics Code Authority. If you look at Sauron, he's basically a vampire, but an energy vampire. What is blood? Blood is energy. It's what makes your body move. He takes your energy out of your body, and you look all wrinkled. I couldn't have him turn into a bat because that was too obvious. What else flies and has leathery wings? A pterodactyl. Okay, so a pterodactyl bites somebody. He gets sick and seems to die. But he comes back to life by drawing energy from someone else. Sauron was basically a vampire, and the comics code never spotted it. Unquote. Sauron remains a character in Marvel Comics to this day, and he is the subject of one of the greatest comic book panels of all time. In Spider-Man and the X-Men, number one, Spider-Man says to the villainous pterodactyl created to get around the Comics Code Authority, you can rewrite DNA on the fly, and you're using it to turn people into dinosaurs. But with tech like that, you could cure cancer. The not-vampire pterodactyl replies, but I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. I love that. That is one of the most pure expressions of comic bookness, I think, ever written. But I digress. By 1970, the Comics Code Authority had been chugging along for some time. Writers and artists had been making stories about dinosaurs and time travel and totally not real issues. But Stanley of Marvel Comics wanted to do a story about what he thought was one of the evils of the day, drugs. Now, Lee claims that he was approached by people inside the federal government who wanted him to put an anti-drug message in a Spider-Man book. I was not able to verify Lee's claim that he had the feds actually coming to him and saying, please put anti-drug stuff in a Spider-Man comic, but that's his story. And Stan Lee, the impresario behind Marvel Comics, is known for, shall we say, uh, embellishing things? Anyway... In 1970, there's an issue of Spider-Man that's not a very special episode, not in any way displayed as Spider-Man versus drugs, but a normal Spider-Man story where there is a guy who gets really stoned, thinks he is a bird, and tries to jump off a building. Don't worry, he is fine. Spider-Man saves him because that is what heroes do. They save people who are falling off of buildings. The Comics Code Authority said, you can't do that. There's drugs in this no seal of approval for you. 1970 was well over a decade after the inception of the Comics Code Authority, and Marvel Comics just ran the issue of Spider-Man without the seal. And no one noticed. No one. Not the printers or distributors. No one who was so vigilant to look for it 
over a decade ago, noticed the absence of this little stamp on the cover of this Spider-Man issue. Buyers didn't notice either. This issue of Spider-Man sold about as well as all the other issues of Spider-Man. It was fine. And this is the first big crack in that highly restrictive content regime. The following year, publishers got together and revised the Comics Code Authority. A lot of those restrictions were loosened up. You could have superheroes versus drugs. That would be okay. Also, among those revisions, it said, quote, Vampires, ghouls, and werewolves shall be permitted to be used when handled in a classic tradition such as Frankenstein, Dracula, and other high-caliber literary works by Edgar Allan Poe, Saki, Conan Doyle, and other respected authors whose works are read in schools around the world, unquote. So EC Comics has been dead for a while. That part of the Comics Code Authority did its job. Marvel and DC are going to bring back zombies, vampires, and all that good stuff. And these revisions led to some really good comics. Uh, well, mostly really good comics. Uh, there's a Marvel character called Morbius, a living vampire. A lot of people think that he was called the living vampire as a workaround so that he would be code compliant. But he was actually introduced post-1971 revisions. And he was just called the living vampire to be weird and different. You also got characters like DC's Swamp Thing, who's kind of sort of a zombie-ish. He's Walking Dead-like, Walking Dead adjacent. He's made of plants. It's complicated. Anyway, he probably wouldn't have been allowed under the old Comics Code Authority because he is a creepy, hulking horror monster who is a star of maybe one of the greatest runs of comics of all time, Alan Moore's Saga of the Swamp Thing. And you also had Marvel's Dracula. DC also had Dracula. After all, he was public domain. There is a great story where Dracula fights Superman. Dracula bites Superman. Dracula realizes that Superman is solar-powered. And Dracula explodes. Which is a totally awesome way to kill a vampire. Having Superman's solar-powered blood be anti-undead fuel. But Marvel's Dracula became a really well-established long-running character. The Tomb of Dracula is a great run of 1970s comics, and it introduced us to Blade, the vampire hunter, that would later be portrayed by Wesley Snipes in two pretty good movies and one really bad movie. Tomb of Dracula, which is one of Marvel's best runs, is the kind of thing that EC Comics could have published in their heyday. There's blood, there's vampires, there's tons of bats and swords and all that good stuff. It's great. Things continued this way throughout the 1970s and 1980s. Also throughout the 1980s, you have many more up-and-coming creator-owned comics and creator-published comics. The 1980s had this phenomenon called the black-and-white boom, where you had lots of comics unaffiliated with Marvel, DC, Archie, or other major publishers who were just putting their own stuff out there. And they didn't go through the comics code. You might have never heard of the black-and-white boom of the 1980s, but... You've probably heard of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Eastman and Laird, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles creators, started them as a parody at the time in the early 1980s. Some of the most popular comics were Marvel's New Mutants, who were mutants, and Daredevil, which had ninjas in it. And so they figured that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles would be a ridiculous recipe for comic book success, and they were right. But 
those early black and white Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics didn't have the Comics Code Authority seal on them. They were successful regardless, and it turned into a cartoon, it turned into action figures, it turned into movies, and it turned into Vanilla Ice rapping about Ninja Turtles in that one movie. I was so into that when I was a kid. It is so dumb, but I have no regrets about my childhood fandom. Anyway, all of this spurred further revisions in 1989. The 1989 revisions are pretty loose. There are provisions about violence, but they just say things like avoid excessive blood and gore. Not avoid blood and gore, just excessive amounts. Also, you're not supposed to demean people because of their gender or national origin or that kind of thing. Crime can be portrayed, but not glamorously, hopefully realistically. And and there is a subsection on attire and sexuality that merely says, Costumes in a comic book will be considered to be acceptable if they fall within the scope of contemporary styles and fashion. That's it. The 1989 guidelines are kind of restrictive, but pretty bare bones when you compare them to the original 1954 guidelines, or even the 1971 guidelines, and there's absolutely nothing about supernatural content. During the 1990s, comics got, well, pretty extra. Character models got bigger, more muscly. There was all sorts of goofy pectorals and cleavage and unrealistically large guns, and the 90s were a um, fraught time for comics. Let's put it that way. There was good stuff out there, but if you say 90s comics to most comic book fans, they'd think of just hideously excessive artwork. And a lot of good stuff was published in the 90s, but so much of it was too much. At the same time, comics were getting less and less stigmatized. You had a whole generation of people who had grown up on them and with them. Comics anymore seemed to be more nostalgic than threatening. And you had other creators working in comics as a medium doing really amazing stuff. For example, Art Spiegelman, who in 1991 put out Mouse about his father's experience in the Holocaust. In 2000, you had Marjane Satrapi's Persepolis about her experience of growing up in Iran. In 2001, you have Joe Sacco's Palestine about, well, the Middle East, about the conflict in Israel-Palestine. And, and those are just the big ones, but you get the idea. By the early 2000s, comic books had acquired a certain amount of legitimacy and they didn't need the Comics Code Authority anymore. So, in 2001, Marvel just ditched it. Marvel was no longer a member of the Comics Magazine Association of America, adopted its own rating system for its comic books, and did what it wanted. But the Comics Magazine Association of America and the Comics Code Authority would linger on for about another decade. In that last decade, in the 2000s, you had... DC, Archie, and some more minor publishers that were still members. And by that time, the Comics Magazine Association of America had hired a company called the Kellen Company, which does all kinds of consultation for professional organizations, to give them notes on their comic books about what was acceptable and what wasn't. During that last decade, you had basically one person, Holly Munter Koenig, who was reading a whole bunch of comics for DC, Archie, and other minor publishers, and giving them occasional notes about what they could or couldn't have. Holly Munter Koenig, it seems, really believed in the message of the Comics Code Authority, and was a true believer in making sure that comics were okay for kids. 
Her big contacts within the industry were two executives from Archie Comics. Those two Archie Comics executives ended up dying in quick succession in 2007 and 2008. That changed Archie as a company quite a bit, probably for the better. But after them, you didn't really have significant comics industry representatives who were really making the Comics Magazine Association of America a thing. DC also just stopped paying its dues toward the end. The Comics Code Authority fell apart as of 2009. But no one noticed. DC kept sending its comics out, got no response, just assumed that that meant stuff was cool, and put the seal on their comic books. Archie Comics later admitted that after the death of its two executives that had been the main industry representatives for the Comics Magazine Association of America, they didn't even bother to send their comics out. They just put the seal of approval on their comic books because, hey, that was just something that went on the cover of a comic book. As of 2011, the Comics Magazine Association of America was dead in name and in fact. Today, the Comics Code Authority, as a piece of intellectual property, is owned by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, an organization which advocates for free speech in comic books. And they sell merchandise, ironic merchandise, with that old Comics Code Authority seal, like enamel pins that say approved by the Comics Code Authority in the shape of the old seal. I have one. It's on my backpack. And today, it's not like there's anything goes in comic books. It's not like you could have teenage Spider-Man go out and have horrible, salacious, X-rated adventures, but it's much, much broader than it used to be. In fact, as of this recording, there is this whole kerfuffle about Batman's penis actually showing up in a comic book. Yes, that happened. Batman's Batmember actually showed up in a book called Batman Damned. Apparently it's going to get covered up in subsequent editions, but that's how far we've come. We've come from, hey, you can't even have werewolves, to you can have all of Batman. So much for his secret identity. Anyways, thank you again to everybody who came out to hear the shorter version of this at Rose City Comic Con. And thank you to everybody who supports the podcast every single month. I couldn't do this without you. Also, be sure to go on Apple Podcast, write us a review, give us a rating. That helps other people discover the show. The show is on social media, on Facebook, Facebook slash Weird History Podcast. And I am on Twitter at Joe Streckert, at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. And I'm looking at the calendar and seeing that October is upon us. Almost. But hey, let's get an early start. Let's do a bunch of episodes on creepy stuff and dead people. Talk to you next time. Bye. (laughs) 